Last week, uh, we took, to remember the Reformation, we took a break from our sermon series in Ephesians. Uh, We wanted to look at the Lord's Supper and compare it to the Roman Catholic Mass and critically examine both of them from a biblical perspective. But now that Reformation Week has come and gone, we jump back into Ephesians. And more specifically, we jump back into Paul's household codes of submission. We've been looking at that for a while. Now, if you were just going off your memory alone, that might sound kind of strange to you. Because from our understanding of a household, we've covered the whole household. Right? We've talked about fathers. We've talked about mothers. We've talked about children. What, what more to the household is there left for Paul to cover? And if you're thinking that, then your confusion probably comes because we tend to define a household according to 21st century American standards. But in the Greco-Roman world, in the world that Paul lived in, there was typically, not, maybe not typically, but oftentimes, the household was a little bit bigger than ours because of a little thing we call slaves. For Paul... The household is not fully addressed until the slaves and the slave owners of the household are fully addressed, which means we have the opportunity to talk about this not controversial at all topic of slavery today. Would you open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6? We will read verses 5 through 9. If you've gotten there, I would invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. Thus saith the Lord, Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling and with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. This bars the reading of God's word. Please be seated. (coughs) The ESV renders the first subject of the passage as bondservant, but this is actually just another name for a slave. Paul is addressing slaves and slave owners in this passage. And given our nation's history with slavery, and especially in light of all of the continued racial animosity that exists in our culture today, contemporary American readers are are prone to be angered or offended, or what the young kids call triggered by this text, uh, because of Paul's apparent approval of slavery. Paul addresses slaves and slave owners... And yet, at no time does he repudiate the system. He does not command slaves to rebel, to become activists. He calls them, quite the contrary, to reverential, joyful obedience. And worse than that, he turns then to the slave owners. And Christian ones that, right? We all recognize Paul doesn't have the authority or the power to abolish slavery in the Greco-Roman world. But he does have the authority and the power to abolish slavery in the church. How easy would it have been to say, slave owners, free your slaves. Get rid of them. Free them. But he doesn't do that. Paul assumes that it's actually moral and lawful 
for Christians to own slaves. He, just, he merely tells them to be moral and gracious and just slave owners, but they can be slave owners. And this is what our culture finds so offensive. And so that's why today's sermon, a better pastor than me probably could have synthesized it a little bit better, but you could almost think of today's text as two mini-sermons in one. Because typically, the job of a pastor is to explain what the text says. But here, because of our nation's history with slavery, what's often offensive about this text is what the text doesn't say. And so we're going to approach both of these things today. I want to talk just a little bit about what the text doesn't say before we can really move on to getting to what it does say. Because what we want it to do is abolish slavery. That's what it doesn't say. That's what it doesn't do. Americans tend to be what we call abolitionists as it pertains to slavery. And Paul was not an abolitionist. And so what are we to make of this? And I, I want to give you three preliminary remarks just about slavery to help sort of clear the fog, clear the air before we really dive into the text. So slavery from a biblical perspective, three preliminary remarks. Number one, from a biblical perspective, slavery is not ideal. Slavery is not good. It's not preferable. It's not an ideal institution. Even though Paul was not an abolitionist nor an activist, it would be abusing this passage to take from it that he was a fan of slavery. That he's like all for it. The Bible's position of slavery and the Apostle Paul's position of slavery is that it's not good. Uh, we know this from a number of reasons. Uh, first, Jesus regularly gives us the example. If we want to know what's God's good created order supposed to look like, where do we go? We go to the garden. We go to creation. That's where Jesus defines marriage. That's where Jesus defines sexuality. A lot of things can be determined from how did God make the world. And even though God made the world with hierarchy and authority, he did not intend the world. We have no concept of slavery in Eden. And whenever the Bible talks about the new heavens and the new earth, again, it talks about hierarchy, it talks about authority, but it never talks about slavery. So we can deduce from Scripture, from how God created and how he's going to recreate, that slavery is not something God wants. It's not this ideal, good institution. So slavery is not ideal. And that's just the broader perspective of Scripture. Paul, I think, has made very clear that he's not particularly a fan of the institution of slavery. And I get this because the same Paul who wrote Ephesians 6 is the same Paul who wrote, who wrote 1 Corinthians 7. And notice what the instructions he gives to slaves in this text. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. So notice some of Paul's argument in this text. Again, he, he assumes slavery is permissible. It's moral. If, if you were a slave when you were a Christian, be content with that. Remain a slave. But notice a couple things he says. He says, but if you have the opportunity, he doesn't recommend you take it. He commands you take it. If you're able to not be a slave, you should not be. It's not good to be a slave. If you're a slave, that's okay. Be content. But if you have the opportunity, uh, get, get rid of slavery. And he not only commands that, but he gives us a theological foundation for it. 
And Paul's, the way I would summarize his reasoning is Paul is saying slavery confuses your identity as a Christian. Because as a Christian, our goal is not to abolish slavery. We want to be slaves. But who do we want to be slaves to? Jesus. When you're a slave to a freedman, it confuses your identity that you're actually a slave to Christ. The same way if you own slaves, that's confusing your identity because you're not supposed to be a master, you're supposed to be a slave. Paul's saying Christ is the one who purchased you. Christ is the one who bought you. Be Christ's slave, don't be somebody else's slave. So Paul is not a fan of slavery. He doesn't promote slavery. But nevertheless, he understands that slavery is really not ideal. By the way, I actually think that this position here in 1 Corinthians 7 is subtly implied in our text. Go back to Ephesians 6 and look at how he begins and ends. Look at verse 5 with me. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters. You notice how he qualifies that? Don't obey your masters, obey your, your, your earthly ones. And then look at what he does in verse 9. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. Paul is making it very clear in this text that we are all slaves to Christ. He's the master, we're the slaves. Some of you are earthly masters, some of you have earthly masters, but really we're all slaves to Christ. He's the ultimate master. And so I think Paul, it would be a mistake to assume that Paul is like pro-slavery. Like he really likes it. He thinks it's great for society. I don't think the Bible is pro-slavery in that sense. It's an unideal institution that Christ will one day eradicate once for all. And so I think this means that Christians should be against slavery. Uh, Whenever a nation abolishes slavery, I think the response of the church should be good riddance. Good riddance. The problem for us today, though, is that the assumption that people make is that if the institution is not good, it's therefore impermissible. If it's not part of God's ultimate plan for creation, then it's always sinful and it can never be done right. But that's just not the case as it pertains to the Bible. One theologian put it very simply. In Scripture, slavery is neither enjoined nor forbidden. It's never pushed on us like you must be slave owners, you must be slaves, but it's not forbidden either. It's it's sinful. It's wrong to be a slave. It's wrong. It's neither enjoined nor forbidden. It's not good, but God can use it. He's willing to work with it. And so what that means is that as an institution, broadly speaking, slavery is not sinful. It's not automatically sinful. It's not ideal. It's not good, but it's not sinful. In other words, slavery can be done right. It can be done lawfully. Now, here's why this is so important. Because slavery can become a powerful tool that the enemy uses to strip your children of their faith. And here's the strategy of the enemy. The enemy wants to indoctrinate our kids from a very young age with an ahistorical, reductionistic, simplistic view of history. And that view says this, slavery equals bad always, every time, no qualifications, no nuance. And so once we learn just this very simplistic attitude, slavery equals sinful, then there becomes no room in our worldview for something like a godly slave owner. That's a contradiction in terms. You can't be a godly sinner. (laughs) Slave owning is sinful, 
So anyone who has any positive view of slavery or who participates in this institution to any degree automatically becomes evil, automatically becomes wicked. So that's implanted in our kids' minds. And then they open up their Bibles and they see Paul telling Christian slave owners how to own their slaves. What does that make Paul? Evil. But even worse than that, let's say as they flip open their Bible for their daily devotions, they happen to read through the book of Leviticus. You know what they're going to find there? They're not going to find Paul commanding and legalizing slavery. They're going to find Yahweh commanding and legalizing slavery. Slavery was permitted in Israel. God told them how to do it. So if slave owner equals bad, and God says, here, go be slave owners, what does that make God? No good. Now, to be fair, so so this is the historical assumption that if we're not nuanced about it, (laughs) if we don't take a biblical approach to it, again, the enemy can use this to cause us to distrust or dislike our Bible. Now, I do want to be fair, though. It is understandable why so many people in this country have this reductionistic, ahistorical, simplistic view of slavery. And that's because of the very evil and shameful history that our particular nation has with slavery. So this leads to my second qualification. The first one is that slavery is not ideal. And the second one is this. Slavery in the ancient world is very different from American chattel slavery. Paul wrote about slavery hundreds, over a thousand years before any African ever stepped foot on this continent. Simply stating that the institution of slavery is permissible does not at all mean that all forms of slavery are permissible. If slavery can be done right, that means it can also be done wrong. And the southern slave trade was wrong for a good variety of reasons. It was entirely race-based. It was heavily involved. uh, It it heavily stood on the shoulders of kidnapping, or what the Bible calls man-stealing. And, by the way, man-stealing is punishable by death in the Old Testament. It separated families, taking children away from their parents. It prevented slaves from ever receiving education or becoming property owners. And it overwhelmingly just involved vicious, violent cruelty on the part of not just the people who kidnapped them, sold them, and shipped them, but then on the way they were treated here. It was an unbelievably violent, cruel, unbiblical, ungodly way to practice slavery. And the Bible does not promote that kind of slavery. Because the fact remains that these elements that I just talked to you about were, I mean, there was obviously exceptions, but generally speaking, they were almost entirely absent from how slavery had been practiced for thousands of years in human history before this. This was a very novel, a very new way to do slavery. Again, when the Bible talks about slavery, it does so almost 2,000 years prior to what we call the transatlantic slave trade. Hebrew slavery was very different from American chattel slavery. And even Greco-Roman slavery, which was not nearly as merciful as Hebrew slavery, was still significantly better than American chattel slavery. 
Just to give some examples, in, in Paul's day, <coughs> slaves were never separated from their families. Children were not taken and purchased apart from their families. Oftentimes, more often than not, slaves in Paul's day were property owners. They had their own houses. They had their own land. Many slaves were held to high esteem. Many slaves would have slaves underneath them that they were controlling. Now, of course, there were obviously sinful masters. There's, there's always been sinful masters. There's always been cruel expressions of slavery. But on the whole, generally speaking, painting with a broad brush here, in the first century, slavery was actually not that bad of a gig. In fact, many slaves enjoyed their slavery. And here's how we know this. Because in the Greco-Roman world, you were only allowed to hold a slave for a seven-year contract. Unless it was royalty. Royalty could do 14. But the average person in the Roman world could not demand a slave be a slave for more than seven years. At the end of that seven years, the slave got to choose free man or remain a slave. That didn't happen in American chattel slavery. And you might be surprised at how many slaves at the end of their seven year re-upped with a lifelong contract. They wanted to remain there. They liked it. It wasn't that bad of a gig. And so the, the situation between what we think of when we hear the word slavery is nothing like what Paul thought of when he heard the word slavery. I, I really like a very succinct way one historical scholar put it. He says this, modern readers need to free themselves of a number of assumptions about first century slavery, including the assumptions that there was a wide separation between the status of slave and free, that all slaves were badly treated, and that all who were enslaved were trying to free themselves from this bondage. That's the case in American slavery. It's not the case in slavery for the history of the world. <laughs> in fact, this is actually one of the reasons why so many Bible translations like the ESV stopped even using the word slave. That's why the ESV uses the word bondservant. And these Bibles, usually they will explain at the beginning of the Bible why they did that. And the ESV translators will tell you it's because we know the vast majority of our readers, when they see the word slave, they're going to take a bunch of novel, ahistorical assumptions and they're going to put it into that word. And so we think it is actually misleading to call these people slaves because you have redefined the word slave and it doesn't fit what Paul was talking about. So they did a more literal translation, a bond servant, someone who was servant with a bond. They were a servant, but you were not allowed to get out of this servant. You were bound to it. It's a slave. <laughs> but the ESV translators knew that the southern slave trade was a great, wicked thing. The Bible does not permit that kind of slavery. <clears throat> and forgive me, the last preliminary remark. So slavery is permissible, but not ideal. Slavery is very different in the ancient world than it was in American South. And the last this, I do think the Bible does ultimately give us a strategy for the abolition of slavery. The gospel, in other words, point number three, the gospel can abolish slavery. Jesus, Paul, Peter, the other apostles, while they were not activists who actively called for slavery to be abolished, I do think the Bible does subtly take aim at slavery. I think that the apostles instead promote an inside-out approach to slavery, while Americans tend to have an outside-in approach to slavery. The American view of how to handle slavery was to come from the outside and crush it. 
I think the biblical view is to erode it from the inside out. And that's what I think the gospel does. I think that when we ponder texts like the one we have here and all the other texts that address slavery, I think the more we ponder it, the more we see that if you were to really put into practice everything the Bible says about slaves and slave owners, if enough people did that over time, slavery would either be a totally uh, mild thing, it wouldn't even be a controversial thing, or it would go away altogether. I I don't want to spend our whole time proving that, but let me just give Charles Hodges' explanation. I, I, I really love the way he puts it. Let me take a drink first. Hodge says this, It is thus that the Holy Spirit deals with slavery. Slaves are not commanded to refuse to be slaves, to break their bonds and repudiate the authority of their masters. They are required to obey with alacrity and with a sincere desire to do their duty to Christ. Masters are not commanded as an immediate and imperative duty to emancipate their slaves, but to treat them according to the principles of justice and equity. It is not to be expected that the men of the world will act in conformity to the gospel in this any more than in any other respect. But believers will. And the result of such obedience, if it could become general, would be that first the evils of slavery and then slavery itself would pass away as naturally and as healthfully as children cease to be minors. I think the gospel would allow slavery to just dissolve over time. So in light of these three qualifications, let's go back to the text. But let me remind you that our job today is to not come to this text as Americans. Our job is not to come to this text as 21st century Enlightenment thinkers. Our job is to come to this text as Christians. We must do our best to not allow the cultural baggage of our contemporary age cloud our judgments about Paul's household codes for slave and slave owners alike. And so when we come to this text as Christians, what we find is that Paul teaches slaves and masters, he treats them the same way he treated husbands, wives, and children. He gave them their duty, and then he gave them gospel motivations to perform that duty. But I noticed as I was studying, there's something different in this text something we didn't see repeated or hammered home the way we saw with husbands and wives and children. There's something unique about this text, so we're going to approach it slightly differently. The best way to see what Paul is doing in this text is he is putting into practice the justice of Christ. Christ is judge. The Father has anointed Christ as the judge of all of the earth. Jesus himself tells us this. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Christ, specifically, will be our judge. The Apostle Paul said the same thing in 2 Corinthians, telling Christians, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So Christ is our judge. And what Paul is doing here is Paul is establishing that he is a good judge. He is a fair judge. He is a perfect judge. And that that Christ is a perfect judge actually has a great effect over how we live our lives. The justice of Christ 
impacts how we live in the stations God has called us to. So let's look at three ways that Paul establishes the justice of Christ. How do we know that Christ is a good judge? Well, Paul gives us three reasons. The first is that Christ gives just rewards. And in good preaching fashion, all three of these begin with an R, alliteration to try to help you remember. First R, Christ gives just rewards. Look at verses 5 through 7 with me. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Let's stop there for a moment. So what does Paul command of slaves? Paul makes sure to tell slaves that the justice of Christ requires them to be obedient slaves. Again, Christian slaves should not become abolitionists who rebel and fight against their masters. But on the contrary, they should be the most obedient of all their colleagues. But Paul takes it a step further. As Christians, we know that obedience always has two parts. Whether you're a slave or a free person, there's two parts to obedience. There's the external work and the internal work. You can obey on the outside but still be disobedient. The Bible is very clear about this. If your heart is not in the right place, God does not accept your obedience. So Paul doesn't just call slaves to perform outwardly the works of obedience. He calls them to obey inwardly with fear and trembling, with sincerity of heart, with goodwill. They're not just to obey. They're to obey reverentially. They're to obey joyfully. Their obedience must be characterized by reverence and sincerity. What's reverence? Why reverence? Well, because he tells them the same thing that he's told every single person so far. Husbands, wives, children. Submission in the church is always ultimately rendered to God. Wives submit to husbands as part of their obedience to Christ. Children submit to parents as part of their obedience to Christ. So when a slave obeys his master, he's not really obeying his master. He's obeying Christ. Because Christ is the one who gave this command. So out of fear and trembling, why? Because you're not ultimately obeying your master. You're obeying Christ. So their obedience needs to be reverential. It's religious, sincere, or serious obedience. But he also tells them in verse 5 that it needs to be done with a sincere heart. The, the literal Greek would be actually be single-mindedness with one mind, which we translate as sincerity. You don't have a, an ulterior motive, right? And, and what is sincere obedience? Well, he defines that in, in 6 and 7. To obey with sincerity means you don't just obey when the right people are looking. You don't just obey just to impress your master and try to get something good from him. In other words, don't be people-pleasers. True obedience is rendered to God, and God is always watching. God always sees the true obedience that we do, and so that's why our obedience can be joyful. Because we're not ultimately obeying my crabby boss. We're not ultimately obeying my cruel slave master. We're obeying my good Father in heaven who wants to pat me on the back when no one else will. I'm obeying the God in heaven who wants to tell me, well done, good and faithful servant, when no one else sees what I'm doing. 
We obey with obedience. We obey with joy and sincerity because we're not ultimately obeying men. We're obeying God. And it is our pleasure to please God. Now, Paul knows this is a big ask. We all know this is a big ask. It's very easy for all of us who are not slaves to sit back and tell slaves to obey their masters with sincerity and joy. This is a big ask. So this is where Christ's justice comes to bear. This is the motivation then. What could possibly motivate a slave to joyfully and reverentially obey a slave owner? Well, what does Paul say in verse 8? Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. The motivation for slaves is that Christ gives just rewards. All of their obedience, even if it's never once recognized by men, Christ sees it and he's excited to reward it. Slaves work knowing God will reward them. And one of my biggest fears is that evangelicals do not live their lives this way. We don't think like this. And the reason we don't is because we have lost the full Reformation doctrine of sola fide. And we think that if we're, if we're saved by grace through faith, then there's no room for rewards in this system. We think that justification by faith alone excludes rewards. But on the contrary... Justification by faith alone is the only thing that makes rewards possible. If we stand before God and we're not forgiven by the imputed righteousness of Christ, we're not standing in the blood of Christ, he has nothing to reward. All he has is sin to punish. And no amount of good deeds will ever overcome the great and heinous ways that you've offended God. Without justification by faith alone, you will receive a just reward and it's called hell. But once we're forgiven, once our sins are wiped away, once we're adopted into God's family, now God does not have to treat us like we are foreigners asking for payment. He can now treat us like children. You reward your children for their good works. But it doesn't mean that if they don't do a perfect job, you're going to kick them out of the family. Your children are your children by grace alone. But you still reward their best efforts. Sometimes you give your kids rewards that their works didn't even really deserve. It wasn't even that good of a work, but you love them, so you reward it anyway. We are saved by grace through faith, and that wipes away our sins, and that adopts us into the family of God. And now that we're adopted by grace alone, we come to our Father, and He sees all of our good works, and there's no sin to punish, so He can reward us. In our system, rewards become a matter of grace and not merit. But rewards are very much a part of the Christian life. And Christ is going to give perfect and just reward. But his justice is not just shown in that he gives just rewards. It's shown in the fact that he is no respecter of person when he does this. As Paul says, whether slave or free. When we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, your rewards will not be based on who you are. Man, woman, black, white, Hispanic, child, adult. In other words, at the bar of Christ, the question will be, what was done? It will never be, who did it? And that's true justice. When you go into a courtroom on earth, you don't want the judge judging you based on your skin color or your gender or how much money you make. You want the judge to look at the facts 
And that's what Christ does. I don't care if you're black or white or Hispanic. I don't care if you're slave or free. I don't care if you're man or woman. What was done? And he gives perfect, equal rewards for all good deeds that are done. The justice of Christ is shown in that he gives perfect rewards, which serves as a motivation. But there's a flip side to this. Because judges don't just reward. Judges have to do something else. Christ also gives just retribution. He gives just rewards, but he also gives just retribution. We see that in how Paul addresses masters. Look at verse 9. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. Masters are called to the same thing that slaves are called. And what is that specifically? Masters, what masters and slaves have in common is that they are both to recognize that the one they ultimately serve in their vocation is God. They must perform their duties with the justice of Christ in mind. And that changes how a master masters, to use it a verb, greatly. As Paul says, it will cause them to stop their threatening. Now, that's a hard word in the Greek to, to translate. This, it doesn't mean that a master can never, under any circumstances, warn people of just consequences for disobedience. The word threatening is a more general term for animosity and cruelty. Masters will treat their slaves with dignity, with fairness, with justice, when they remember that they must give an account to Jesus for how they mastered. The justice of Christ brings this about because he gives just retribution. And so in, in, with the slaves, the justice of Christ was seen somewhat as, as a motivation or as an encouragement. Here, the justice of Christ is, is really being used more as a warning. Treat your slaves with cruelty all you want. Have fun answering to Jesus for that. That's what he's saying. You see the way the justice of Christ in that he is both a good giver of rewards, but he is also a it just retributive judge. This will change the way all mankind live. The world would be such a better place if every single person sincerely believed that they would one day have to give an answer to Christ for the things that they've done. I can tell you a lot of people in Auschwitz not very long ago would have enjoyed life a lot better had Germans believed that they would give an answer for the things they were doing. The justice of Christ encourages the good works of Christians, but the justice of Christ also tempers the evil of man. It should make us be afraid to answer because he is just and that he gives just rewards and he gives just retribution. However, I actually think that there's a third answer in here. I think the justice of Christ, there's, there's the two obvious ways in reward and retribution. I think there's a third way. It's subtle, but I think it's there. And that Christ gives just requirements. Christ is asking a lot from slaves in this text. We already covered that. I would, ask, I would argue he's actually asking a lot of masters too. This is a very countercultural way. None of their buddies, none of their friends are being asked to be masters like this. Let me ask you this. Is Christ asking too much? Is it unfair for Christ to ask a slave to be joyfully obedient? I'm thinking, if, if, if I'm a slave, my natural instinct is to tell Christ, be joyfully obedient to that guy? You don't get it. You don't understand. He's cruel. He's stubborn. 
He's hard-headed. He's unfair. You don't know what it's like to have to submit to a person like that. Is Christ being unfair? Or turn it to the masters. He's telling masters, stop your threatening. Stop your cruelty. Stop your animosity. Be loving and gracious and kind. Earn their love. And the master says, Christ, you don't get it. There's, there, there's no controlling these people. They're, they're, they're so disobedient. They don't listen to me. I, I can't keep them in line without violence and cruelty. You don't know how hard it is to steward over foolish and disobedient people. Right? Does Christ not understand? He doesn't understand the perils of slavery. He doesn't understand the difficulty of mastering. Is this unfair? And what do we know about Christ? He knows exactly what both of these worlds are like. The text is subtle in this. How does, again, how does the text in verse 9 relate us to Christ? Who is Christ in this text? Verse 9, masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. Does Christ know what it's like to be a slave owner? Yes. He's purchased everyone in this room. Everyone who believes in Christ belongs to him. He's our master. And let me ask you this. Are you easy to lead? How foolish are you? How obedient are you? Christ is asking masters to master like him. He's not asking them to do something he's not willing to do themselves. Let me flip it on you. How good is Christ to you? How merciful is he to you? How kind is he to you? We are so foolish and so disobedient. And how does he respond? With nothing but grace, nothing but kindness. Christ is not asking any slave owner to do anything he's not willing to do himself. That's called justice. That's called fairness. In other words, to use the English expression, he doesn't just talk the talk. He walks the walk. Now you might say, well, that's masters. That's the easy part. Christ doesn't know what it's like to be a slave. Read the Gospels. Christ was never a slave. He has no idea what it's like to be a slave. Well, it's true he was never a slave, but I disagree that he doesn't know what it's like to do the things he's called these slaves to do. First and foremost, the Bible does speak of his incarnation as servitude. Philippians 2, that Christ Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. You want to know what's more humiliating than being a human being and being a slave to another human being? being the creator of the universe and then becoming a human being and having to obey people. Christ is very familiar with servitude. Very familiar. But in case you really don't believe me, turn to 1 Peter chapter 2 and Peter is going to make it very clear that Christ knows exactly what it's like to do the things he is calling slaves to do. 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 18 through 23. Servants, again, slaves, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, you have been called, let's stop there, you have been called to to accept your abuse 
You have been called to, to continue to live with submission and joy even when you're being treated cruelly. And, and what gives God the right to command such a thing of us? Verse 21. For to this you have been called because, why? Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin and neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Christ came and did the exact thing he is now commanding slaves to do. He walked the walk. He's telling slaves, I know exactly what it's like to be treated unfairly. Better than you do. And how did I respond? With activism, abolitionism, violence, riots, rage, burn the system down. There was no sin, no deceit. He trusted God is judge. I trust him. You see, what is subtly implied in our text in Ephesians 6 is that Christ gives just requirements. He does not ask of us anything he wasn't willing to do himself. And doesn't that make it easier to obey him? Don't you despise the generals who don't go into war with the soldiers? They'll send you off to die, but they won't do it. It's not how Christ leads. He gives just reward. He gives just retribution. He gives just requirements. And so perhaps the broader lesson is that this, in this passage, we, we are learning this, that we do not study God as a mere academic exercise. You see, for Paul, knowing that Jesus is just an attribute of God, knowing that Jesus is a just judge, has very practical applications. For slaves, it means that they can obey their masters joyfully and sincerely with the hope of eternal reward. For masters, they too can earn a reward. And if they decide to despise Christ, then they will be tempered in their anger by the justice of God, meeting him on judgment day. When they remember that Christ is judged, they will seek their own reward or they will fear the wrath of Christ and it will not kindle their rage. And so I want to, con I want to conclude by asking you this rhetorical question. How does the justice of Christ apply to you? None of us in this room are slaves or slave owners. That's illegal in this country and good riddance. But we all, like slaves and slave owners, we do all have a vocation God has called us to. Like slaves and masters, it is our job to relate our everyday work to the Lordship of Christ. We must all delight to know that your vocations, just like slaves and just like slave owners, can be done to the glory of God. In other words, you do not need a church job to have a spiritual job. You don't need a ministry job to worship God with your vocation. Christ is the rewarder of all vocations, whether slave or free. He is the Lord of all of our vocations, and we worship Him and glorify Him through our vocations. So again, how does the justice of Christ apply to your vocation? Whether you're a homemaker, a teacher, a landlord, a pilot, a pharmacist, a student, an administrator, a parole officer, an HVAC technician, an accountant, a soldier, a farmer, a coach, a nurse, an electrician, an artist, 
a multimedia specialist, an engineer, a doctor, or a pastor. Glorify God with your vocation. Earn heavenly rewards through your hard work, through your integrity, and through your sincere obedience. Obey Christ in and through your station in life. And when that's hard, when that's painful, when you're struggling to obey, when you're struggling to work well, remember that your just judge understands. He knows the struggles of being a servant. He knows what it's like to work hard days and to be treated unfairly. And because he knows what it's like, he can lead you through the valley. He can be your comfort and your example always.